Today's scripture is from 2 Corinthians 11. I repeat, let no one think me foolish. I am talking like a madman, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me for, of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Allison. Well, good morning again. We've uh, had the opportunity to... Josh Miles not being here, screen stuck. Someone spilled coffee all the way from the back, which I appreciate because I've done. Um, It's been a good morning so far. Um, We're going to jump into that text, why that text uh, was read. We're we're in the book of Acts, but before I do, I want to let you know who I am. My name's Sean. I'm the lead pastor, teaching pastor here for Redemption Peoria. Um, And I only really have one announcement outside of letting you know that if you have questions about what Redemption Church is, how we operate, we're 10 different congregations spread throughout the state of Arizona, eight here in the valley, and um, I'd love to be able to help you kind of navigate what that means, and maybe it's different from a church that you're aware of or or have been in yourself. Um, I'll be in the the lobby by the Connect Desk over by the vending machine, and you can come up and say hi if, if we haven't met yet. Here's the, the one thing. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you knew we took a break from Acts. Um, and if you are new, you might not know this. And if you were new last week, it's the first time you heard it. So I want to remind you, um, if you want to get plugged into Redemption Peoria, um, what we've decided to do instead of just kind of putting you in a community is we're doing something called a start here class. So that is for those who have, you know, they're semi-new. They want to know more about Redemption Church, Redemption Peoria, and how to get plugged in. If you're new, that's the place to start is the start here class. And you can go to the Connect Desk. John Demeter, who's wearing a red shirt today, he's going to be out by the Connect Desk. He'll give you a card and it has a link and all that. And, and it'll help you get connected. So if you want to get connected, that's going to be the place to start. We'll kind of catch you early on, on certain issues that we believe in if, if you might disagree. Um, here's the other thing. If you've been coming for a while and, and you want to um, get involved with what we talked about a few weeks ago and then again last week, which is our classes, uh, starting in October, um, we are starting our first class. It's a class on marriage. Now, you're welcome if you're single to go to it, um, but we're going to have a singles class starting in, in November. So just keep, you know, be aware of that. But if you are married and you feel like this would be a, a good opportunity for you and your spouse to get through certain things, and I'll give you more details next week, um, that would be an awesome class for you to go to. So here's what I would say. You can text, um, there's a number up there, Myrna, if you don't have it, we've been having difficulty with the screen all morning, but there's a phone number. There it is, 623-850-4690. Text the word join, um, and you'll get a digital pushback uh, before you leave today. And that's a kind of a card, gives your name, uh, uh, what class you want to sign up for, all that stuff, and then we'll shoot you out an email. Cool? Okay, so 
Um, you can open up to Acts 23. Allison came up here and read um, 2 Corinthians. And the reason she did, she read um, through this, this portion of scripture in 2 Corinthians 11 that Paul is looking back at his time uh, that he's been ministering. And it's important that you understand where that text comes about. That text um, is written around the time as we, we turn Paul, and I'll give you some, some updates as to where we are with Paul. As Paul's making his way into Jerusalem and to Rome, we, we, we understand that that text was written somewhere in that time. And in that text is this declaration, I've, I've been beaten Man, I've been shipwrecked, which we're going to see, we're going to get into. Um, uh, I've seen beasts, I've I've been in cold, I've been in hot, whatever it is. um, I've given my life to this thing. And and, and the question I want to ask as we go into the text is, what causes a man like Paul to do what he is doing? As we've read the book of Acts, and we know historically, you can pick up any Fox's book of martyrs, people giving their lives to, to these causes. We've been in um, Ephesus and seen, seen these uh, rebels come about, the, these huge uh, conflicts come in Athens. We've seen all the, the, the dissension that's taken place everywhere the gospel's gone. What causes men like Paul or women who walk into a city, preach this gospel with the plan of being persecuted? Like, what does that? What, what, what brings about that reaction? Okay? And, and for us to get there, we're, we're going to cover um, two whole chapters in the Bible today. Uh, Acts 23 and 24. And I know we've gone long just covering like four verses the last couple weeks. I promise. Uh, well, I don't promise anything. Well, let's hope we'll get out of here in 40 minutes. Okay? Um, so so here's, here's what I want to do. I want to read this narrative. I want to catch you up in a second. Read this narrative. And then I want to look back. Because it, it really kind of just reads as just the... The next part of Paul's story. Here's what you may not be aware of. Paul has um, been traveling. He's a guy that we are introduced to um, in Acts chapter 9. He's, he was saved by the Lord, knocked off his horse. God did a miraculous work in his life. And he's been preaching the gospel to Gentiles, non-Jews ever since. And he's gone on three journeys during this time, okay? He went on uh, uh, this journey to travel. One back, came back to Antioch, which was this epicenter for the Gentile church. Did it again. And then this time, on the third journey, he came back. He didn't go to Antioch. He ends up going to Jerusalem. Now, he makes this declaration as he's going to Jerusalem. He essentially says, hey, I'm going to Jerusalem. I know I'm going to die, but I don't count my life as any value at all. And so when he rolls into Jerusalem, he goes to the temple uh, because James asks him to do some certain things. And as he does this, he begins to proclaim to the Messianic Jews, the Jews who hold to Jesus, um, that God has called him to go to the Gentiles. The Jews do not like that. And so they grab him at that moment, and then they begin to indict him, right? They begin to, to take him to the courts and say, you're against the law of Moses, so on and so forth. And that's what we're picking up in the story uh, uh, in the book of Acts. So this is what it says. In Acts 23, verse 6, there's a small interaction in the first five verses. I'm going to skip and kind of sum up certain parts. So just know it's not that I don't appreciate those parts, but I think I can sum them up uh, a lot quicker than just reading them and explaining them. The first six verses is this first interaction between Paul and the high priest. Uh, Paul kind of uh, has this interaction uh, uh, with him, and, and then it goes on to um, this room full. So we're, if you can imagine, Paul, he's in Jerusalem. There's this room full, almost like the size of of this room right here, this room full of Sadducees and Pharisees, all the people. You you have to think of Israel, um, if you think of it like America, think of like governors and mayors, like our political leaders, okay? But Israel is um, doing its best to be a theocracy, not a democracy. It's doing its best to be under the rule of God. And so it's this religious establishment that it's trying to put into place. And so it's the, the rulers of, of uh, Israel and their Sadducees, Pharisees, and all that. This is what it says. Now, when Paul, 
perceived that one part of, of this room that was full were Sadducees and the other Pharisees. He cried out in the council, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and Sadducees. Let me explain why. Um, the room is, is uh, full in this moment and for the most part, any religion, pagan religion or not, um, there is some type of belief about what happens when y- you die, right? What, and, and usually it has to do with a new type of life, whether good or bad, whatever it is. And the Sadducees looked at the resurrection, the idea that when a man dies or a woman dies, they, they one day will be raised from the dead. The Sadducees said that's ridiculous. And the Pharisees said, no, that's absolutely true. Okay, And so there's, the, there's always been historically this disagreement between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Paul kind of, I said this in the preaching collective, almost kind of like slick little manipulative Paul goes, oh, I know who's in the room. I'll just not make him be against me. And he goes, oh, no, no, I'm here because the resurrection of the dead. Right? And so the Pharisees and Sadducees are like, ah, blah, blah, blah. okay, they start fighting. Um, it causes this huge uproar. The uproar is so bad, they start fighting, right? Paul has uh, some claims on what he believes about the resurrection, which we're going to get into. Um, And and this is what happens uh, in verse 10. Let's pick it up there. And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, so here's Paul. He's, He's taken away because of all that's going on. Paul's now, if you can imagine, just this small little jail, this small little uh, jail cell, this dungeon-like jail. Um, In that moment, Jesus visits him, okay? Now, this is an important part part in this text because Jesus comes and visits him and is getting at why Paul is doing what he's doing. Listen to what he says, uh, what Jesus says to him in verse 11. Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, uh, so you must also testify also, I'm sorry, so you must testify also in Rome. So now Jesus visits Paul while he's in that little prison cell and goes, hey, listen, you're here in Jerusalem. You're telling people about me. You're telling people about the facts about me, but I'm also going to take you to Rome. And actually, just so you're aware, the rest of the book of Acts is the journey to Rome. So let's pick that up. When the day came, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So the Sadducees, Pharisees, they're all fighting. Paul gets put in this little dungeon thing. The, the Jews in this moment go, we got to get rid of Paul. He's causing all these problems for us. So there's 40 men who bind themselves to not eat or drink until they kill Paul. So they better get it done quick. And so what they say is, hey, do this. Um, go tell them we want the, 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 uh, uh, Paul to go to a higher court. So just send him along, push him along, because we want him on the road. Because while he's on the road, we can ambush him there and kill him. Now, unfortunately, what the next part of the text says, unfortunately for them, is um, Paul's sister's son. So his nephew, um, and he called, he's called a young man, so probably early teens, hears this conspiracy. He hears about it, and he goes, no, that's not good. He goes and tells Paul, hey, these Jews said they're going to kill you. We, we got to figure this out. Paul goes, okay, immediately go tell the Roman officials. Go tell them. So this boy goes and tells the Roman officials. And the Roman official goes, hey, cool. Thank you for telling me. Don't tell anyone you know this. Now we have the, the, the um, advantage of surprise. So that's where we pick it up um, as he tells these people in verse 23. Then he called two of the centurions, so now they know, get ready, 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea 
at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote this letter to this effect. And essentially at this moment, the Roman official says, hey, take 200 soldiers. These these 40 men who are going to try to uh, uh, destroy Paul. I, I got you one up, right, times three. So I'm going to take, take these men, and I'm going to have you uh, go with these men. These 200 men go with Paul uh, to take them over to this governor, Felix. And he writes in this letter basically explaining all that's going on, saying, hey, there's this guy, Paul. I don't know what's going on. There's some kind of dispute. I'm a Roman. I don't really care, but I care that it's causing an uproar in my city. So there's this dispute between some kind of law issue and, and Paul's on his way to go see uh, this governor, Felix. And that's where we're going to pick it up in verse uh, uh, one of chapter 24. A lot of Bible, more than most of you guys have read this month. So let's do this. Okay. I know such a, I'm better because I'm a pastor statement. So not, not cool at all. God will judge me for that. I apologize. Um, Verse 1, after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullius. They said before the governor their case against Paul, and when he had been summoned, Tertullius began to accuse him, saying, so now here's our environment. Paul makes it to Felix the governor. He's standing there, and on one side uh, of Felix are the Jews who are saying Paul's all bad, and the other side is Paul saying it's not what it looks like. And the Jews begin to, Tertullius, the, the spokesperson, begins to make this declaration. Since through, um, through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, buttering him up, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and ev- everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague. That's crazy. Listen to that. Paul's called a plague. One who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. And is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him by examining him, your, uh, by examining him yourself. You will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all the things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him, uh, he spoke, basically said, Paul, why don't you speak? So here's the Jews going, here's Paul. He's a plague. He's causing all these issues. Everywhere he goes, there's riots. You don't want that, Felix. You're a good guy. You don't want that. We need to take care of this Paul guy. Paul is now going to respond. Now, I'm going to um, uh, sum up most of what Paul says. Essentially, Paul goes, what they're saying is not true. Now, yes, there have been riots caused, but the reality is what they're accusing me of, of hating the law of Moses and all these facts, that's, that's not true. That's not what's going on. As a matter of fact, I was detained, and if you were with us about four weeks ago, the reason Paul was detained in the first place was a, representa- a misrepresentation of identity. The Jews thought Paul brought in these certain men into the temple, and that just wasn't, it wasn't those men. It wasn't true. And so Paul basically goes, no, that's not true, and he makes this declaration. We're almost done with the text. In verse 19, um, let, let's read verses 19 and 20. They ought to be here before you and make an accusation. Should they have anything against me or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found, uh, when I stood before the council, other than, uh, this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is, re- uh, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Let's stop. Okay. There's a last part of the passage that we're going to go at, but let's stop there and let's go back to asking the big question. Here is Paul, man, and that's a lot of text. I mean, it's a good story. It reads well, but what do we do with it? I mean, it's, it's a lot to hear Paul in this moment going to stand before Felix, <clears throat> excuse me, um, pushing against the Pharisees, not liking uh, the Jews in, in, in this whole Sadducee Pharisees, not liking Paul. What do we do with this? Why is Paul doing what he's doing? Now, we're, we're going to springboard to get that answer found in verse 11. This, listen to this. I want you to listen very carefully. 
The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, this is Jesus talking to him. Jesus talking to him in prison, in the barracks, Jesus making this declaration, take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. I need you to hear what, what Jesus just told him. See, for us, um, we're like in this postmodern platonic worldview. And for, for most of us, um, we grew up in a culture that truth is so relative, right? Like I can look back and argue one way or the other and we go, eh, like I'll make up a, let me make up a term real quick. You guys have never heard. There's this term I'm going to start using fake news. Okay. Came up with it right now. Um, okay. There's this idea that we, we can spew these facts and, and make a declaration about something. But here's what you've got to understand about our context. Paul, Barnabas, Peter, all the other apostles, the some, I would say at this point, 50, 60, 70,000 Christians that are on the board are looking back and all they have are the facts they know about Jesus. And Jesus in this moment is, he's going, listen to me, continue to testify about what you know. And all this church has is, I know this to be true. And if this is true, if this man Jesus did miracles, if he really was put on the cross, if he said what he said, if he is who he said he was, that demands something of me. That demands Peter to stand up and talk to the Jews in Acts 2. That demands Stephen to be stoned before the council. And that demands Paul over and over, no matter what trial hits him, to go, I realize and recognize these facts. What I know about Jesus is true, which is an oral tradition passed on. They don't have all these papers going around, uh, at least not, not to the extent that we have them. And here's Paul. He's heard. He knows. He's met Jesus. He knows what it is to be true. These facts he continues to bring to a world that is lost. That is what is motivating. That, that is what's pushing him. And, and this, is, this is tricky, right? Because um, we're, we're struggling in the Western world to understand what we know and what we believe are not always on the same page. I, I shared this recently with a group of pastors, but my buddy Uche would always get frustrated. He's from Nigeria. would always get frustrated when we would talk about, um, when we talk about like what we believe as Christians, because for him and his culture to say, you believe something automatically means that's what you're living out. You can't believe something and not live into that reality. Right? Like, and the cliche is you believe the chair is going to hold you up, therefore you sit on the chair. No one, like, believes the chair is going to hold them up and go, eh, well, I, no, I believe the chair can hold me up. I just, I don't want to sit on the chair. I know it can. There's a dissonance there. And, and, and Paul is hearing from Jesus these facts that you know are true continue to proclaim in Jerusalem, in Rome, all these things. And so this is what I want to ask What's motivating Paul, right? And if it's these facts, if it's these things, then what's the core of these facts? What are these things that, that, the, that the church is looking back on? And we recognize that orally, I'm sure they're hearing about miracles. I mean, they probably know the story of Jesus and how he healed Jairus' daughter. He turned uh, uh, water into wine. He multiplied bread and fish. They, they know the story that Jesus, he, he died on the cross. Orally, they've heard this. They, they know that to be true. But, but amidst all of this, there's one thing that is all they have beyond all those things, which consummates them all to be true. And it's the very reason that Paul is saying he's on trial. It's the first thing and the last thing that Paul says in our passage this morning. He's on trial because of the resurrection of the dead. Hear me when I say this. The church more than anything 
celebrated the resurrection, the church more than anything realized, this is big, if a man died and he rose from the dead, if that's fact, if you believe that and I believe that, that demands action. No one goes, oh, yeah, he rose from the dead. Anyway, back to football, right? Which I'm going to watch, watch a sinful amount of football today, FYI. Okay, so, so hear me. Um, I want to just, just, let's boil down to that real quick thing. I want to read something to you from uh, John A. Brodus, who is uh, um, an older Southern Baptist guy. Um, Southern Baptist has been in the news a lot lately. It's been nice. This is what he says. It was the signed manual of the deity. It was the seal of the sovereign of the universe affixed to his claim. It declared him to be all that he had ever professed to be. And so it establishes the truth of his teachings and the truth of, of the, the whole creation society. The whole Christian society, sorry. The great fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead is the central fact of the evidence of Christianity. So I need you to understand this. Paul is going where he's going. Paul is recognizing all these facts are true, but he's doing what he's doing because he believes something actually happened. Jesus did die. Hundreds of people before and hundreds of people after him died claiming they're Messiah. But hear me, Paul in this moment believes Jesus really did raise from the dead. And hear me, if you believe that, there is no casual Christianity. You don't ask, why is Paul doing what he's doing? If you really believe this dude rose from the dead. It's what consummates everything he's talked about. Every miracle, every saying, his death. It's, it's what makes Jesus the real deal. And this is something Jesus talked about over and over and over again. He knew this was important. Listen, it's, it's mentioned in every gospel. I, I want to share this with you. In John chapter 7, or J- John chapter 10, he says this. I don't have these on the screen, so you're just going to have to track with me. I lay down my life that I might take it up again. In verse 18, he says it again. I lay down, my, uh, down, I lay it down myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up. It says it not just in John, but it says it in Matthew. In verse 23, they shall kill him, and the third day he shall be raised again. In Mark 8.31, it says it again. Uh, And he began to teach them, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Luke 9, 22. Uh, So all four gospels saying the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be slain and be raised uh, the third day. Jesus said, listen, I'm going to do all that I'm going to do, but here's what makes this thing the real deal. It's more than getting together every, what, March or April, once a year. What we're to be celebrating over and over in communion, in worship, in the word. We're here right now if you're a Christian because Jesus rose from the dead. The facts that Jesus, all he did, historically we want to argue, we believe are true. We actually believe they're true. And this is what's frustrating. I can stand back and read Acts 23 and 24 and go, why would Paul do what he's doing? Why continue to press? Because he's not messing around because he knows it's true. When you get dressed in the morning, you get dressed by way of what the day is going to be. Right? Ain't nobody rolling in. Well, I know I'm going into work today, but I'm just going to roll into my pajamas with with my pajamas anyway. No, you know that that is true. You know that's going to happen. And you adjust your life accordingly. And Paul, hear me, can't help but go. Paul can't help but cause riots. If this is true, the 39 lashings, the shipwreck, the beatings, the sleeping in the frigid cold, the lack of food and water, 
It only makes sense. If this stuff is true, hear me, the early church and us, it's all we've got. If you believe it's true, it demands a response. Listen to N.C. Wright. This is what he says. Christianity began as a resurrection movement. There is no evidence for a form of early Christianity to which the resurrection was not a central belief. Bolted onto Christianity at the edges. It was the central driving force informing the whole movement. We can see it woven into the earliest Christian theology we possess. The resurrection had occurred and the followers of Jesus had to reorder their lives, their narratives, their symbols, and their praxis accordingly. Do you hear what he said? Listen to 1 Peter 1.3. We have been born anew to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Do you understand? Listen, Jesus dying on the cross is like what we sing about. It's what we hold dear to our heart. But Jesus dying on the cross is vanity without him raising from the dead. And now here we sit. Now this is important because I'm trying to use all of my passion to, to, to remind you of how important this is. But the issue is, for us, this story's 2,000 years old. Yeah, I know we rose from the dead. Yeah, yeah, I know that. It's rote. It's calloused. And yet at the core, it's what staples us to Christianity. We're hopeless without it. Listen, again, this is why Paul, verse 21 of, of chapter 24 It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial this day. Al Mohler says this, the the, um, resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead separates Christianity from all mere religion, whatever its form. Christianity without the literal physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is merely one religion among many. See, the cross stands as condemnation on all human attempts at self-righteousness and the fallen world will do all within its power to hide the cross from sight. Hear this. But the empty tomb is the seal and confirmation of the cross, and the world will shield its eyes. So, why am I like? Why do I? Why am I going so hard at this? Um, there's a recognition that I understand that it's rote, but at the same time, here, here's what what um, I think we can stand back. And I, I would steal this from Tim Keller. Um, we can debate all day about how creation was formed. We can debate all day about how it's going to end in our eschatology. You can have atheist buddies who are kind of wondering about Christianity and go, did they really fit all the animals on the boat? Like, are you telling me the sea actually parted? You're telling me at one moment, this guy Elijah calls fire down from heaven and lights this whole altar aflame. Like, like you're, you're, you're telling me the reality of what I know about a man being swallowed by a fish. That, that sounds insane. Hear me. Forget all that for a second. If someone can raise from the dead, they can do whatever they want. You understand? So if we're wrestling with the God of how he does all these crazy things, if he's the one who brings life to something that is dead, to someone that is dead, then parting the sea is nothing. A man being swallowed by fish is nothing. That's why this matters. So here's what I put on you. First to you who are in this room and you're wrestling with Christianity. Like you're sitting there going, man, I don't know about this whole thing. Forget all the other stuff. Go at the resurrection. Go at it. Find out if you believe it to be true. Wrestle with it till the end of your days. Do not stop because if it is true, it demands something. 
if, if you come to and you're honest with yourself, you lay all the facts before you and you go, man, the facts about Jesus are real. And it's consummated in the fact that he truly was raised from the dead, bro. Then all you've got is Christianity. Now, now to you who are believers, um, I can't help, but even in my own heart, um, wrestle with the facts that what I believe to be true and what I know are disconnected at times. Hear me. I've read, I don't know, and this isn't to brag, but I probably read maybe 40 books on the resurrection in my life, whether that be through the seminary process, uh, getting my bachelor's before I, um, uh, went to school at all, just on my own. I mean, any Christian has heard of, you know, Strobel's case for Christ and all these different things going through all these, uh, uh, processes and books being inundated, watching videos and all this. And I know, I know without a fact that it was a literal, the dude was literally dead. He wasn't like unconscious for a couple days. He was dead. And I feel like I can argue all these different ways why that's true. And then he was alive. I know that is true. I'm just speaking for myself. Maybe you don't know that to be true. Maybe you don't believe it as, and I quote fact, but I know that's true. Here's the problem. I know it's true, but I don't know if I always believe it's true. Like if something is believed, if, if I see it as fact and it's there, it demands a response. There is no casual Christianity if the resurrection is true. So, so hear me. Um, if the resurrection's true, dabbling with sexual sin is not okay. Because if the resurrection's true, then the cross is true. And if the cross is true, what he said was true. This is Lewis's whole argumentative, like he's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. Like the dude's either crazy and all of his disciples lied about him about this resurrection thing. And if that's where you want to go as a non-believer, then, then go down that track and figure out if it's true or not. But if you come to find out it's true, hear me, everything the dude did and everything the dude said was true. That means you've got to wrestle with the bigger problem. He rose from the dead. And if he rose from the dead, the dude's got some kind of power. If God ro- raised him from the dead, I always get that raised, rizzed, rose from the dead, okay? If he rose from the dead, again, us asking, us asking the question, why is Paul doing what he's doing, is almost foolishness, which actually leads to why the text um, was read for a scripture reading. Let me read it to you again in 2 Corinthians 11. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes, less one. So 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. One night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea. The dude's in danger all everywhere he goes. And, and the facts about Christianity are what is driving that. No one intentionally 
fast for 40 days. No one intentionally sells all they have and goes to be a missionary to China. No one intentionally walks into their business place every day, praying for those people, walks into the classroom every day, praying for those people. No one has a hope that people would turn to Jesus without motivating verified facts. If you believe it to be true, the only response is 2 Corinthians 11. The only response is to be all in. And if we're not, let's go back and verify the facts. If we're not, let's question how all all in we really are. It's clear Christianity is causing an uproar. Is it causing it in us? My prayer for you this morning is that you would um, see that well, that you would hear that well, and you would be like Felix um, to at least wrestle with this, but you would not be like Felix in the response. This is the last part of our text. This is how it finishes. Paul responds to Felix. Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying. Do you hear that? So now Felix hears out Paul. Paul Paul responds with everything he knows, all the facts about Christianity. Felix is sitting there, and here's what's interesting. Felix has an accurate knowledge of the way. He knows about the things of Christianity. And so he goes, okay, I hear you, Paul. I hear you, Jews. And he dismisses Paul. He puts him away. Listen to what he does with Paul. Um, As he does, let's pick it up in verse 23. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Okay, Paul, I heard you. Go back to the barracks. You guys, let him, let all the friends come to him. Let the, the other Christians, the people of the way, let him tend to his needs, all that stuff. But listen to what's going on within Felix. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. So now here, Felix and his wife call Paul back out. I've got a pretty accurate knowledge of the way. Paul, can can you tell me more? Listen to this. Verse 25. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self control and the coming judgment, you ready? Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Felix hears the facts about Christianity. And he goes, oh God, if this is real, and he's alarmed, I I, I need some time, go away. Here's the unfortunate story of Felix. He ends up dying two years later. He doesn't respond. Someone ends up taking his place. And it's just history at that point. But I think his reaction is worth um, mentioning here and worth noting. And I think this is why Luke puts it in. Because everywhere Paul's going, it's demanding a response. And Felix, being alarmed about the coming judgment, being alarmed about the facts about Christianity, doesn't respond. Right? So let me go old school youth pastor on you. Okay? Um, Any good youth pastor. I was a youth pastor for six years comes up with some kind of crazy, um, cheesy analogy uh, to scare the teenagers into believing, okay? I remember at one youth camp, someone showed the audio from hell, right? And they were like, hear that? Oh, help, right? And I was like, oh gosh, I got to tell my friends about Jesus, okay? <laughs> okay? So like any good youth pastor, um, here's one that I was told, and I, I, I'm sorry for the cheesiness, but I thought it was brilliant. Um, so the analogy would be, imagine a man walking on a wall, right? And as he's walking on this wall, I remember being told this by a guy named Brian Dunn. 
Uh, imagine he's walking on the wall and he comes to a fork in the road. And here's this cheesy Satan on one side, pitchfork, like, yeah, come on this side, come on this side, right? And then here's Jesus, very cheesy, cliche Jesus on this side. No, 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 come this way, come this way. Like every commercial that you can think of, right? And so here's this man standing and he's looking at Jesus and he's looking at Satan. And I remember about 17 years old, um, this analogy be like, okay, well, what does he do, right? And so he stands there and I remember Brian telling the story and he goes, and he just, he, he, he stands there and. And he looks at Satan and he looks at Jesus and he goes, I think I'll just stay right here. Right. And then Satan starts to rejoice. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Cliche Satan. And then here's Jesus just puts his head down. I remember hearing this as a 16 year old. Right. And I remember the first time I heard it, someone goes, well, why is he happy? Why is Satan happy? And Brian just looked at the kid and he goes, cause he owns the wall. And I remember being like, <laughs> okay. But I think this is apropos for Felix. I think Felix goes, I don't want to hear about this. I don't want to wrestle with this, but hear me by not wrestling. You've made the decision because the facts are verifiable. The facts are on the table. You believe them, you wrestle with them, or you don't, but to go, I know I've got an accurate way. I'm kind of on the fence is to not believe. My prayer for us as Christians is that we would see these facts. We would respond appropriately and we could not help, but think like Paul. I'd only be a good pastor to give you a cheesy youth, youth pastor example, but to finish now as a lead pastor, that uh, pastors grown men and women to finish with Charles Spurgeon because he's far more cooler than, you know, some audio from hell. Um, in Romans uh, chapter 6, Spurgeon's preaching on the idea of the resurrection, that it gives us a new hope. And um, as he does this, he starts to play with uh, his own analogy. And, and my hope is that you hear the analogy and then his response, therefore. This is what he says. Imagine boys going to swim in the river one morning. One of them has just dipped his toes in the water and he cries out as he shivers, oh, it's so cold. Another has gone in up to his ankles and even his calves. And as also he declares that he is fearfully chilly. But see, another runs to the bank and dives all in. He rises in a glow, all of his blood is circulating and he cries, delicious, what a beautiful morning. The water is splendid. This is what Spurgeon says in response to that. You Christian people who are paddling about in the shallows of religion and just dipping your toes into it, you stand shivering in the cold air of the world, which you are afraid to leave. Oh, that you would plunge into the river of life, how it would brace you, what tone it would give you. Go for it, young man. Go for it. Be a Christian out and out, all in. Serve the Lord with your whole being. Give everything wholly to him who brought, who bought you with his blood. Plunge into the sacred flood by his grace. May that be true of us. May we not dip our toe in, our foot in, but may we plunge all in because the facts are true and it demands that type of response. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thanks for this narrative. It's, um, it's good for us to just even hear the journey of Paul and, um, and to recognize that um, we're on our own journey and there's parts that even as we read this text that kind of feel almost unimportant. Um, but as we zoom out, we recognize here's this guy who keeps giving his life over and over and over. And even in this specific thing, he's on trial for the resurrection of the dead. Something he believes to be true. He believes not just to be true, but has actually happened to someone, Jesus Christ. And Lord, here you are continuing to push him along. Reminding him of why he should be doing what he's doing. 
because he believes certain facts to be true. He believes, Jesus, you really did do miracles. You really did teach the things that we have in our Gospels. You really did die on the cross for our sins, took our sin, gave us your righteousness, and you really did raise from the dead. Jesus, my prayer for us is that we would see that and that we would look at Paul's life as we finish going through Acts 28, as he treks his way to Rome, spends time in Rome. And our prayer would be the same. I don't care if I'm a madman. I'm talking like a madman. I've gone through craziness. I don't care. I don't care. My prayer is that as a church, as a people, we'd be all in. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.